This Biz Now podcast is brought to you by Industrious. The world can seem like a pretty angry, divided place right now. It was called a freedom rally. But it rapidly erupted into a day of anger and arrest. This is one of a number of protests across the country, but this one is by far the largest and has brought the centre of London to a complete standstill. Tonight in France, the fight over who needs to get vaccinated hitting the streets. Demonstrators in Paris pelting police who respond with tear gas. Close to 100 demonstrators protested outside the St. James Theatre on reopening night for Springsteen on Broadway, upset that the sold-out 1,700-seat theatre crowd had to show proof of an FDA-approved vaccination to be allowed inside. The last thing we need is something that's going to divide us further. But if we're not careful, there's a chance that the future of work will do just that. The office has always held the promise of equality and meritocracy, a place where workers can rise from mailroom to boardroom if they show enough drive and ambition. But that has never been the reality, because the office reflects the society that created it. More than half of American office workers in the 1920s were women, and 100 years later, that figure has stayed fairly constant. And yet the path to the executive floor seems almost as closed now as it was then, and even more so for people of colour, the LGBTQIA community, and people who are neurodiverse or physically disabled. A switch to flexible working patterns has the potential to change that and offers a chance to reimagine the world of work as a more diverse and equitable place. But getting it right will involve difficult decisions that bring individual choices into conflict with what's best for society. And without thought and consideration around the question of who gets to work from home, when and why, there's a real danger that a societal shift with the potential to be inclusive and change the world for the better instead ends up making the workplace even less diverse and society even less equal. I'm BizNow's New York reporter, Miriam Hall. And I'm BizNow UK editor, Mike Phillips. And this is Office Politics, the battle for the future of work. A BizNow podcast series examining what is at stake as the world figures out the role offices and remote work will play in all of our lives. COVID-19 has already highlighted a huge division in society, one that centres around who has the ability to work from home and who doesn't. In a pandemic, the ability to work from home can literally save your life. The World Economic Forum found that after medical workers... The most likely professions to catch COVID are the swathes of workers who can't work from home, but whose society simply needs to keep functioning. Care home operators, kindergarten teachers, school bus drivers, firefighters, prison wardens and grocery store workers. Even within the world of the office, there's a clear divide. A receptionist or office clerk is three times more likely to become infected with COVID than a web developer or an accountant, the WEF said because their job is more likely to involve the need to come into a workplace. And that fact has created resentment. I've had multiple managers say things like, my uh, frontline employees are really angry. That's Nick Bloom, a professor at Stanford University who we heard from in episode one. Bloom and his colleagues have been studying the way businesses organise themselves and the impacts of work from home for almost two decades now. And during the pandemic, they've been interviewing almost 8,000 workers in the US and UK, and the managers of dozens of big firms to find out how and where they plan to work in the future. They've had to spend the entire pandemic coming into the factory or the store or the office. Some of them got infected. 
I've even had you know somebody die. And now I'm having to tell them that they're going to have to remain on business premises forever, where senior staff are going to get this lovely perk. Bloom said that firms were looking at ways to quell this anger, including by increasing the pay of staff who can't work from home by around 5%. But the findings of another group of academics highlight how that might not be enough to stem the tide of resentment, because working from home might widen the already growing gap between the highest and lowest earners. So I'm Morris Davis, uh, call me Mo. I'm a professor of finance and economics at the Rutgers Business School. You may remember we heard from Mo Davis in last week's episode, talking about how the improvement in technology that allows some people to work from home could have huge benefits for society and have an impact as seismic as an invention like electricity. But there's a downside to that, because those benefits are not going to be shared equally around society. Those who can't work from home already tend to be lower paid. They're more likely to be women, and they're more likely to be people of colour. Davis's research predicts that those people able to work from home, already among the higher earners in society, are going to get richer, creating greater income inequality. The new work from home technology makes them more productive than they used to be. They still have the option of going to the office, but now they have an additional option of a productive working from home environment that they had before, but it wasn't as good before. So high skill workers now have access to a new technology and that makes them relatively more rich than they used to be. The low skill aren't any less productive than they were before, but they don't have really have access to this new technology. So they don't benefit from it. To what degree do the two sides, the two sort of poles move apart? The easiest way to describe it is to talk about ratios of wages. So say prior to 2019, the ratio of high skill to low skill wages on average was a number like 1.8. And then post-pandemic, we're predicting that number to jump to 1.9 or 1.95. So that's a significant widening in the course of a year or two. That rise equates to about a 7% widening of the gap between higher earners who can work from home and lower earners who can't. And there's another effect, less direct than the fact that those able to work from home will just earn more. High housing costs already have an impact on social inequality, with lower paid, usually younger workers unable to get on the housing ladder and benefit from the way that rising house prices have essentially turned homes into cash machines. And Davis predicts that working from home is going to accelerate this trend and that higher earners will actually get paid more for having bigger houses. One piece of the why is that this new work from home technology affects high skill workers more than it does low skill workers and that makes them better off, relatively speaking. The other piece of it, and this might sound a little odd, but it's, it's a real phenomenon. High skill workers are going to invest in better home offices. We're seeing real improvements. Either people are buying bigger houses or bigger fl- renting bigger flats or the houses that they currently have, they're changing them so that they have more space to work from home. And those are investments that people are making. So investments pay a return and that return will be, uh, they'll be more productive at home And as a result that they're more productive, eventually that'll show up in their wage. It's a bit like saying, this is not totally equivalent, but it's close. Firms used to pay a lot for office space. Now they're going to pay a little bit less for office space, and they're going to pay a little more for workers, the high school workers. Some of the extra that they pay for the high school workers, that's to compensate, not on purpose, but the way it works out is that's to Mm -hmm. compensate those high school workers for their investments in their larger home offices. It's like firms, the chain is firms used to rent office space, they'll rent less. 
workers will be renting more office space, but that office space will be home office space. Is there a solution to mitigate against this? For both Bloom and Davis, potential growing inequality is something that politicians need to understand and to address now or risk unintended consequences down the line. I think this is relevant for society more generally, both in the UK and actually particularly in the US, there's a move towards more progressive tax, so tax on basically higher earners. And I think this is one of the ingredients. People are going to look around and say, look, post-pandemic, um, a lot of high earners have got this great perk. And you know, I'm not defending this. You know, This would be me, you, many of our listeners would get hit by this if we're living in the US. But I think it may be a nudge in the direction of more progressive taxation. But I think for most people listening, the big issue is actually within firms of you know, dealing with massive resentment and anger that's definitely bubbling up. Hmm. Progressive taxation. Not something politicians in the US or UK have been that keen on for the past, say, 30 years or so. Anything else? I'll speak for the United States. I suspect England is the same. The United States, we don't manufacture much anymore. That's Davis again. He outlined how a focus on education and training for individuals, but also societies, is going to be key. So, you know, manufacturing was a place where you could have a career and not need a college degree. You could be really good something or other in a factory. So we've moved towards a services economy and a high tech and a high knowledge economy. The question is, if you don't have a college degree, what kind of career can you have in that economy that's well compensated? Like if you don't have a college degree, it's probably harder to generate ideas that are at the frontier if we're in a knowledge economy. You could do sales. Maybe there's other things you could do too. I think this is why we see some social unrest. People are worried about the safety net because even if you want to work hard, what kind of job could you get and how much does it pay in a knowledge economy? There's another element to the debate about remote work, equality and diversity, and that's how it will affect things within workplaces themselves. The ability to work more flexibly has been touted as a potential boon for workplace diversity, something that is sorely lacking in many office-based white-collar industries across the US and UK. There's a strong argument that remote work can solve many of the problems that see women, people of colour or people with a disability leave the workforce, and survey data shows many workers that fall into those camps as being among the most enthusiastic when it comes to working from home. My name is Sheila Subramanian. I am the Senior Director of the Future Forum, a consortium backed by Slack. Throughout the pandemic, Slack has been surveying US workers about their attitudes to remote work and working in an office. In March this year, it said that just 3% of black workers want to come back to the office full-time, compared to 21% of white workers. If you're a person of colour, the thought of not having to go into the office every day can be psychologically liberating. The office is often touted as something that builds company culture and fosters a sense of collective identity among workers. But for people of colour, the opposite can be true. So what we've seen is that employees of colour, Asian, Black and Hispanic employees, have a higher sense of belonging when working remotely compared to working in the office and relative to their white employee counterparts. So what we're seeing is that this sentiment translates into overall return to office preferences. So 80% of Black, 70% of Hispanic and 77% of Asian respondents want that flexible working model. Um, either through a hybrid or remote only model. So one of the main reasons is being able to better take care of family and personal obligations during the day. And what we're seeing is that 
people don't necessarily just want this free for all. They want flexibility with structure. They want standing conversations or meetings or core team working hours between let's just say 10 a.m. and 1 p.m. where people are coming together. They want that flexibility with some guardrails rather than just work whenever you wanna work. So that's an important point to make because I think oftentimes executives hear flexibility and where and when you work and they think that it's just gonna be chaos and everyone's going to be um, working asynchronously all the time. That structure is something that employees still want today. Talk to me about why a employee of color might feel more belonging when not in the office compared to the office, because that obviously runs counter to everything we hear about how how companies build culture and build belonging amongst their employees. So the office has largely been a place of um, norms that have been set for decades, whether it's the time you arrive or the time you leave, um, showing that you're working at all times rather than reading the news. But for employees of color, what we have seen is that a higher sense of belonging working remotely is somewhat attributed to a, a practice called code switching. So code switching is having to change your behavior, your appearance, the way that you talk to essentially fit in or conform to the majority group. And in the office, it's largely been white employees and white, white executives. And so having to do that every time you come into the office is exhausting. And what we've seen is that um, employees of color feel that higher sense of belonging because they no longer have to code switch. They're closer to their communities. They're closer to their family. And if they experience a microaggression, someone touching their hair or someone commenting on how their food smells, they can close their laptop and they can walk away. The same factors are at play when it comes to people in the LGBTQIA community, not having to deal with microaggressions to filter who you are can be a huge positive. There's a geographic element to it as well. In addition, this whole experience has enabled employers to hire from all different geographies. And so it's enabled people to be closer to their families. It's enabled them to be um, in their hometowns, in their communities that they grew up in, and then work it, log into work, but then also have dinner with their family. Uh, so that sense of belonging is not just the negative code switching piece. It's also being able to strengthen your existing bonds because you're closer to the people that you love and that you care about and that you feel connection to more often and with more hours in the day. I feel that way as a working mother, as well as a woman of color, to be able to be, to have breakfast and, and dinner with my kids and also to be closer to my parents has been a huge benefit rather than sitting in traffic commuting every day. When it comes to gender, study after study has shown that in households where both partners work, a greater burden of caregiving falls on women, whether it's caring for children or elderly relatives. Of course, the best thing for increasing female participation in the workforce, especially at senior levels, would be for this burden to be shared equally between men and women. But in the absence of that, as Subramanian says, greater ability to work flexibly offers the ability to combine work and those family responsibilities. When it comes to people with a disability or who are neurodiverse, removing the need to travel into work every day and negotiate the physical environment of the office can remove an element of physical and mental stress from day-to-day -day life and open up the possibility of fulfilling roles that might not previously have been an option. Take the example of a deaf office worker. In some ways, working from home is better for deaf workers. Trying to keep up with conversations in the office can be exhausting and during the pandemic, with everyone working from home, 
it's become easier to book online interpreters for video calls. But if you can't get an interpreter, those video calls can be very difficult to follow, and the fact that there are going to be more of them in the future of work has the potential to exclude staff that are deaf. When it comes to people of colour, it is of course overly simplistic to say that working remotely more often is a definite benefit, especially when it comes to career advancement. It's still early days of course, but Justin Carty, a senior director at property advisory firm CBRE in London, thinks that in the case of people of colour, not coming into the office as frequently in future could have a negative impact on their career. Firstly, I think um, a lot of that depends on the role that you, you undertake. If you can effectively work from home, it doesn't change your outputs, um, then I'm seeing uh, a few people tell me they, they, they'll be happy working from home, never going back into the office. But Carty said that for those less far advanced on their career journey, the equation is not so simple. So um, some of those people I talk about, friends and family, they're closer to retirement. So for them, um, you know, not going back into the office is, is, is a blessing. And I guess there is a feeling that um, you have to pull on your protective cloak if you're from a diverse background. And therefore not having to, to do that, not having to adjust your behaviour could be quite welcome by some. My personal view is that in order to truly demonstrate what it is diverse professionals bring to the table, the most effective way to do that is to have a presence in the office. You know, women, people of colour think that, you know, we're told that we've got to work twice as hard to be treated the same. You know, I think that is true. I think, you know, stats, experiences tell you that that is true. And it's going to be much harder I think, to demonstrate what you're bringing to the table, not just through your work outputs, but through you as an individual, your person, your drive, your values, your ambition. It's much more difficult to translate that and get that across to the wider team if you're working from home and you don't have that day-to-day -day presence in the office. Now, you'd argue in an ideal world, it shouldn't be like that and everyone should um, have the same opportunities, but we know that that doesn't play out. We don't have to tell you that the future of work is complicated. Get a partner who can make your team's return to the office simple with Industrious. Industrious has offices, suites, and hybrid solutions for companies of all sizes and stages in more than 100 locations across the U.S. and the U.K. Go to industriousoffice.com to discover how Industrious can help bring your team into the future of work. Industrious at industriousoffice.com. Earlier, we heard from Nick Bloom, the professor at Stanford University who's been studying the impacts of remote work for years. His research has drawn one very clear conclusion. The more you go into the office, the more you're likely to get promoted. So if companies, if society wants to diversify the senior levels of business, it needs to think carefully about how flexible and remote work is deployed. So the problem is, if you allow people to choose, you can see that five, ten years from now, all the single young men that live near the office come in every day, they get promoted, they rise up, they become the managers. People with young kids living far away, maybe particularly women, disabled, low income, you know, various subgroups, don't come in, they suffer, they don't get promoted. And 
you not only have a you know horrible diversity and managerial issue, you also have a big legal risk for the company. Marianne Tai is the CEO of New York Tri-State Region at CBRE, and she's brokered some of the biggest office deals in New York City. Any kind of, of workplace diversity requires building um, connections, connections of all, of all different kinds. And I think it is a challenge to do that in a greater, a greater challenge for sure in a hybrid situation. She says if you want to advance your career in the next five to 10 years, you should show up at work. But she also raised the issue of how perceptions around hybrid work for men and women are different. We have seen visible evidence of um, the difference between men and women in the workforce on Zoom. I can't think of an unpleasant episode in which a father was interrupted by a child on a Zoom call. When, when, the, when the father has the child, the child is adorable and perfect and everybody's like waving and throwing kisses and whatever. But I, I can tell you, I've been on a Zoom call with a number of mothers who've had screaming kids at the closed door of the room. But dad was home. What was he doing while that child was screaming at, at his mother's door? Um, so I, I do think that this has uh, complicated, further complicated uh, the whole issue of, of diversifying the workforce. It's a theme Slack Submaranian said came through strongly in the company's research, a difference in what is deemed acceptable as a reason to want to work remotely. Companies have it totally back to front, and it won't be enough to just put in place flexible working policies. They need to change their mindsets as well. A third of working mothers listed being able to take care of personal or family obligations during the day as the leading reason for preferring flexibility, whereas working fathers indicated work-life balance, so 38% indicated work-life balance as their primary reason for wanting flexibility. And that's an interesting dynamic right there because women have oftentimes been the carriers of the load. And what we have also seen in terms of research is that employers oftentimes penalize um, working parents for having to go pick up their kids or taking care of a sick kid. But there's not as much of a penalty if you need to take a run to clear your head or um, you know go run a couple of errands before you head out on a business trip. So the first thing that employers need to think about is what their perceptions are in terms of flexibility and going back to outcomes versus activity. If your um, working parents in your organization need to go pick up their child or want to volunteer for a field trip, they shouldn't be penalized for that if they're still contributing the same outcomes as they were before. I think also it's just really important to normalize and encourage flexibility for all employees because offering flexibility for all employees and encouraging them to take it ensures that working mothers are no longer the ones impacted career trajectory-wise because they work flexible schedules. So if this is all done equitably, flexible work balances the load between parents rather than assuming that the moms are the ones who take on the burden of home life while also balancing their jobs. And for Bloom, employers are going to have to overcome a tension between giving workers a choice of when they work flexibly and telling them what to do for the good of the whole. If you let people choose when they work in the office versus working from home, you get a few problems. Everyone picks the same day, so your office is too full from Tuesday to Thursday and empty on a Monday and Friday. But more importantly, giving staff a choice means that, as Bloom pointed out earlier, some groups come in less and end up getting promoted less, and the diversity problem grows. 
Staff might not like it, but companies need to either let teams as a whole decide their working patterns or even decide those patterns for them to avoid the unintended consequences of some people coming in more sporadically and becoming less visible. And it's up to senior management to lead from the front. Another important issue on working from home is not just in your team that you choose Wednesday, Friday to work from home, but you make, say, people actually work from home on Wednesday, Friday. Because exactly as you say, you can completely imagine the great unraveling. So, you know, it's really clear to see what's going to happen. You're the CEO. You decide, hey, it's actually more efficient, probably, if I come in on Wednesday, you know, my kids are noisy at home or whatever. I, you know, I want to get away and I want to come and work Wednesday or I like my office. So you start coming in Wednesday. Lo and behold, the folks that, you know, directly report to you come in because they want to get a leg up and be around and have more face to face. And then their reports come in, et cetera. And the whole thing just collapses. So, yes, it's very important for management. They lead from the top down. And uh, not only they do come in on the days they're supposed to come in, particularly they don't on the days they're not. And in fact, in a way, that's one of the upsides of the centralized approach that you can't break that. So if you've been told you're Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and you know that office space is used by another team on Wednesday, Friday, you don't have the option to come in. And so, you know, you can feel safe and secure at home that everyone's on the same footing. Overall, CBRE's CARTI, for one, is positive that beyond the debates about remote work, the pandemic has been a moment when companies genuinely grasp the nettle when it comes to diversity. I'm seeing it now. I collaborate with external organisations, with client groups, with, with groups that are would be deemed to be our competitors. But the actual DNI cause goes beyond company boundaries or industry boundaries. It is it's something we all need to, to be involved in and push forward. And I do think, therefore, the spotlight on, you know, George Floyd on one hand, Sarah Everard and women's safety, on the other and microaggressions, the small microaggressions that can lead to escalations and instances like this um, are more in the forefront of people's minds. So therefore the companies I'm seeing are putting in place policies, procedures, um, additional training to try and combat that. So I'm hoping, and you know, the, the proof will be in the pudding, is that uh, when the world does uh, return to some level of normality, that greater spotlight on these issues, maybe this is idealistic, it probably is, makes for a better working environment. But it's undeniable that those issues will still exist. You know, women will still have to, um, you know, feel they behave or adjust behaviour in a way in which to succeed. Um, people of colour, um, people with um, sex, you know, sexual, different sexual orientations, how comfortable and open will the workplace be when you're back? Can you truly walk through the door and be yourself and be treated the same as a result of that? With careful thought and consideration, we could be in a moment where the world of work becomes a more diverse and more humane place, if we get it right. Next week. So here's a dirty little secret that people don't like to talk about. Uh, managers actually have no idea what their employees are actually doing or could do the jobs of their employees. The office isn't just a physical space, it's a psychological space as well, where rivalries fester and love blooms. At its best, it's where you learn what to do in your job and who you are as a person. At its worst, it's a tool managers use to exert their petty tyrannies and make themselves feel important. But what happens to the way we interact as people when a lot of these things play out on a screen instead? This BizNow podcast is produced by me, Miriam Hall. And me, Mike Phillips, with script editing by Ethan Rothstein. 
If you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe or leave us a review. It helps other people to find us.